Do you remember that little song? You remember that? Sometimes uh, things get stuck in your head, and I hope that that's what you're singing for the rest of the day. That's a, a segment from Sesame Street, uh, which was designed to teach, teach kids how to understand the way things relate to one another, uh, what the difference is between a blue square and three red triangles, and it's a necessary part of a child's cognitive development to learn to sort and to categorize and to organize things. Otherwise, they will grow up and their houses will look a lot like yours and your garages and basements. Um, and some people spend their whole lives getting that message down. Here's the problem. We learn this just a little too well. And it shapes the way that we perceive all reality. All through life, we tend to look at each situation and other people with selective eyes. What doesn't belong here? How are we different? And a lot of folks spend their entire lives sorting things that way, looking for the differences. For example, if I were to show you uh, a silver dollar and a nickel, this was minted in 1996, this in 1921. Some of you could say, wow, those are really different. Each coin has a different value. They're from a different era. They're, you know, they're, they're just not the same at all. But others would say, no, they're both the same. They're both coins, and they're both minted in the U.S., and they have value, and they serve the same purpose. Or I could show you an American coin, and a Canadian coin, and a Colombian coin, and some people would say, well, they're all different. They're not even close. They're from diff not even the same country. Others would say, no, they're, they're pretty much they're the same. They're money. You can spend them somewhere in the world, and they serve the same purpose. If I show you a dog and a cat, some of you say, well, they're totally different. Different species, different colors, different sizes. Others would say they're the same. They're mammals. <laughs> they're household pets. They're animals. They're very much the same. Throughout life, we constantly are faced with opportunities to sort things according to difference and according to similarity. There are times when one is needed. And times when the others need it. There's no question uh, about that. I get it. However, I believe that the more we learn to sort according to similarities instead of differences, the more impact we're going to have on our world. We're in the second week of a series called Part of the Plan. And what we're doing is focusing on the values that will enable us as individuals and as a church, all of us, uh, to live in such a way that we would make, as Steve Jobs said, a dent in the universe. So that we would leave this next generation a legacy and a gospel to proclaim to the next generation until Jesus comes. Last week, we talked about how Peter summarized the life of Jesus in just a sentence. He said he went around doing good because God was with him. 
And we talked about how we need to live with, this, live with the same purpose, doing good at every opportunity that we can. Today we're going to look at the second value, which I think is essential if you want to make a mark, and that is the value of finding common ground. To say it in another way, we'll talk about the power of unity. In the early days of the church, a phenomenon took place that has, as far as I know, not very often at least, been repeated. In Acts 2 and in Acts 4, we see the church living in community at a profound level to the extent that people were even selling their possessions and they're sharing the proceeds from those sales with others, sharing everything so that nobody would go without, so that everyone would have enough of what they needed. Now, that's not an exact blueprint uh, for all churches to duplicate. So even though I'm a child of the 70s, I'm not pushing for us to just have one long Bonnaroo or just to live in a commune altogether. Uh, But that's, in a sense, what the church in Jerusalem did in a way. Uh, He's he's not calling us to, to follow that exact pattern and do the exact thing, but that example set by the early Christians and how unselfish they were in their attitudes. It's just a beautiful thing. I want to read from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 uh, to 37. And this kind of just gives you a snapshot of what was going on in that community, in that early church. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought, it to the, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now I want to zero in on one phrase, that very first phrase. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And that word heart and mind uh, I, I think brings up the, the awareness of this part of us that is invisible. The heart representing uh, the spirit and the mind representing the soul. And you see how those two came together in unity under the lordship of Jesus. And then the physical things began to take place and, and, were, and they were cared for. Then they cared for one another uh, in, in the same way. So it's just very... Very, uh, an amazing thing at how that could take place even just within an individual, but then within individuals who come together and their hearts and their minds begin to be like one. In spite of all the differences. And they were as different and diverse and unique as we are. In a very short time, uh, the early church... Uh, was able to turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. They made such an impact 
in their generation, in their world, and they grew quickly. And this didn't happen because they were always bickering with one another or arguing about things. It happened because they were one heart and one mind, and people noticed that. People in the world notice us as believers when we step out of line and do something that just seems unbelievable. We saw that this week when the victims of a horrific act of hate and evil responded in forgiveness. Where else in culture and society would that kind of reaction dare to take place? And we got attention as followers of Jesus. And I watched as one newscaster after another would say something to the effect of, I'm just baffled by this. I don't understand that response. This community didn't understand the unity and the love that these people had for one another, even going so far that they would give up their own possessions to make sure that somebody else, who may have been totally different from them, had enough. Because you had people from Jewish background and Greek background and you had Romans and you had this this beautiful, messy blend of people in this society. When we live in unity, the world pays attention. Because where else does that happen? Your company? In your neighborhood? In your family? Sometimes. An early Christian writer named Tertullian once quoted a pagan official as having said this about the Christians. Look at how much they love each other. That's what got his attention. This is exactly what should be said about us. Even Jesus himself in John 13, 35 said this. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. That's all. There is power in unity. And when we build on the foundation of common ground with others, not only in this church, but in this community and in this city, we're able to increase the impact that we have on the world around us. I made a pledge, you know, and a, and a hope when I became a pastor. I said, I'd love to see Calvary grow, and I'd love to see the body of Christ multiplied, but I want to do that without diminishing any other churches. I didn't come here to compete with other pastors. They are not my enemies. They are my brothers and my sisters. And I pray that God would bless, and every Sunday morning, I pray for other churches in our city to explode. And for God to bless and to anoint those pastors to preach the gospel with power. I came from a town where the pastors cooperated and encouraged and worked with one another. When I came here, I sensed a competitive spirit among pastors and, and kind of fell into that a little bit. But decided, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live my life like that. I'm not going to live my ministry that way. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And a beautiful picture that happened. We went several times to Romania. was in Eastern Europe there with a friend of mine who Doru Butas is a pastor there. We're still friends to this day. And Doru was working at a table. He was, a, he was an associate pastor at a church in Arad. 
And at a youth camp that we did in a place called Manyasa, uh, several students came to Christ. And they were lining up in front of this table. And Doru would say, oh, you're from this place, then you need to go to... And he, and he would motion for another pastor to come. And he says, this young man lives pretty close to your church. He needs to come to your church. You go with him and get to know each other. And he kept doing that. And finally, at one point, I, I, I said, Doru, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, I'm trying to get all these students. I want them in a church. I want them to grow. I said, but why don't you just tell them all where your church is? A rod's not that big. They can all get there by the bus or the train. He said, why? I said, well, so they'll all go to your church. He said, why? I said, well, so your church will get bigger and you'll have a bigger youth group and ministry. And he looked at me with such a sincere look of perplexed. You know, why, why would I do that? And I just began to get it. And I said, I don't know. It's just the way I would have done it in America. And I think he captured something beautiful, that the, that the unity of the believers there and followers of Christ, and they are today the most evangelized nation in Eastern Europe. I think it's because of guys like that who don't care about all the minor things. They just want to see people come to know the Lord. What if we did that? And we can't pretend like differences don't exist. That is so obvious. Uh, I know that some of you are not blues fans. That hurts, but I understand that you like country western or you like uh, classical, some of you, or some of you just like all kinds of stuff, pop music or you know, rap music. And, and we're, we're just different. We're from different places and times in history, but... We can't let all those things be what separate us. Our ages and our races and our our sex and our backgrounds, where we're from. When you begin to build unity in your personal life, in your business life, when you build relationships on the basis of what you have in common and you seek uh, to have that as the foundation, you're going to be amazed at how the impact you have increases in the world around you. So I want us to look at just a few ways we can strengthen ourselves in, in unity and three ways we can find common ground. First of all, let's focus on how we're the same before we focus on how we're different. It's not that we need to pretend that those don't exist. They're absolutely there. Uh, when, when you look at, at money, you think, well, what do these coins have in common? Well, they all jingle. They both have heads and tails. They all would probably work in a parking meter or in a Coke machine and, and so on and on, so on. And you look at how things are the same before you look at how they're different. What if we did that? With people. What if you did that with your neighbors? What if you did that with your coworkers? Our tendency is often to sort people according to how they're different from others and how they're different from ourselves. And the more different we can make them, the easier it is to diminish them, to dismiss them, and even to dislike them. 
Traditionally, Red Sox fans have hated Yankees fans. We went to a game uh, in Boston a few years ago, and we could not believe the intensity of the emotion in Fenway. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It's not like that in Turner Field, where you have gracious southern people. Like Nalen, you've never seen any trouble there, right? Unless Florida comes to town, or Georgia, or Alabama, or... You see what happens. People become enemies. Why can't we just celebrate the fact, okay, we're both fans of America's favorite pastime, and there are two teams that have been involved in, in baseball for as long as the history of the game, and, you know, we can just come together. I didn't see that happening. And sometimes I don't see that happen in Christian communities. I see this, you know, from the time I was in seminary, really even college and afterwards, I have listened to so many conversations about Calvinism or end times or gifts of spirits or a hundred other things you can think of turn into angry arguments and people were separated and could not fellowship. Now, there's nothing wrong with debating theological or ideological or philosophical differences. We do that all the time. But before we argue the fine points of any idea and your, your pet doctrine, let's first identify what's our common ground. Those things that we both believe and that we both aspire to. See, that will guard our hearts from demonizing another person or church or denomination whose opinion is maybe a little different from ours. Folks, as I, as I watch the events this week unfold, and I realize again, and you can think, ah, oh, he's so old school, and he just... These are the last times. These are the last days. When Tiffany was singing, I thought, I wonder if my generation will probably fade away before Jesus comes, or if he'll come. But I never wonder very much about your generation and about the generation of children that are downstairs in the theater. I think we're at the end of things. And Christians, we better get our act together. We better learn how to love each other through our differences and how to share with the world there's one Jesus and there's one gospel and there's one hope for all of us. And that's him. And I saw a beautiful display of that this week in Charleston. You see this in the New Testament approach to van evangelism. Last week we looked at the story of Cornelius. He was kind of a God-fearing Jew. He didn't keep all the rules and regulations. He wasn't orthodox, but he, he tried to be a nice guy. He did a lot of good things to help the Jewish community where he lived. And when Peter talked to him, I want you to check this out. He pointed out the common ground. He said, well, Jesus is kind of like you. He went around doing good. And Cornelius, I've already heard, you do all these good things. You're such a good person. You see, he, he made a connection there. We see it in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17. The Bible says that Paul was greatly distressed. And if you look up that word distressed in the original language, it means he was agonizing. 
He was heartbroken. He was, this was, this was just hurting him so much at the presence of idols in the city. He couldn't stand it. They just made him sick. But he didn't get up. When he had his moment, he had his chance, he didn't get up and think, oh good, now, I'm going to let you have it about these idols. He didn't go into a rant about that, which is what maybe I would have done or maybe you would have done. Instead, given that opportunity to speak, this is so, this is so Paul. And you remember Paul himself, he's, <laughs> he's a Jew. I mean, he has gone all the way up to the high. It's like he's got a Ph.D. in Judaism. I mean, you know, he, this guy is there. He's also a Roman citizen. Put those together. And now he's a Christian. Talk about a guy with a diverse background and personality. Paul is that guy. And when he gets up, this is so cool. He says, I see that you're very religious. And that you've built all these altars to these uh, various deities, including one to the unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. And they're all not leaning back with their arms folded, defensive now. They're all leaning forward and they want to hear what Paul has to say. He told them about Jesus. And in his message, he even quoted one of their own philosophers to bring the message home. In both those cases, you know, where where people were brought to Christ, they didn't start with, you're not one of us. You're different. You're different. And I know, and God bless him, but I was walking at the, uh, the wide sidewalk, you know, in the University of Tennessee where the guy sets up and preaches, and, and he was pointing his Bible, his black, big old black Bible, and God bless big old black Bibles if you got one, uh, but he was pointing that thing and shaking at people and saying, you sinners, and you are a whore, and I just thought, oh my goodness, I'm sure she's going to really, really go and, oh, let me hear more about that, you know. No, I mean, it was just, and I thought, I appreciate your heart, and maybe you know the gospel, but wow, you just seem so full of, of anger, and nobody's listening. I thought, wow, so, I would, it would be so much better if you'd pull one of those students aside and said, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee and tell you about something that happened in my life that was just so powerful? Can I just tell you about Jesus? I, I just wonder at the end of the day what a difference it would have made. In dealing with everybody, your neighbors, your family, your friends, your co-workers, <laughs> um, the first question to ask is, how are we the same? What goals or beliefs or dreams or accents or ideas or hurts, what do we share? I don't go so much to car shows anymore, but I used to, and guess what we would always start off talking about? Cars. Here's the second way we can strengthen ourselves in our unity. Let's focus on what we're for rather than just what we're against. Have you ever noticed how some people and some groups define themselves by who they aren't rather than who they are? They define themselves by what they don't believe rather than what they do believe. They define themselves by what we're against instead of what it is that we're for. 
You see it happen, I see it happen mostly or a lot in politics all the time, in every campaign. And it's already generating because it seems like people start their race way before they used to. You know, now it's like, oh, six years out, yeah, we need to start getting our campaign started. And I think, seriously? And, uh, but, and there's just such an animosity there. And it's already happening, gearing up for the next election. And I see this in the Christian community. Some churches are defined by what they don't do <laughs> and what they don't believe. When I first started in ministry and it looked like I'm going to land in the Baptist church, I can remember some of my friends going, oh, Baptists, oh, you're the ones who don't do this or don't do that and don't do... And I thought, I don't know all that yet. I haven't learned. I just know we're for Jesus. <laughs> we're for Jesus. And he's touched me and changed my life. And they believe Scripture, and they embrace that. You see, there's a stereotype. Some of you have come from different backgrounds, the same background, and, and we kind of get that. You think of any group, and you begin to identify them by things that we're against. Some people base their entire spiritual life pointing out all the other people they think are wrong. And you can name just about any popular preacher or best-selling author. There's a website dedicated to tearing that person down. Uh, and I have found one. There's an anti-Rick Warren site, an anti-Bill Heibel site, an anti-Hillsong site. I mean, and it just goes on and on and on. Now, I don't agree with everything every preacher might want to say. And I'm not going to, you know, try to water down the gospel or what I believe by in, in any sense of the word. But I'm also not going to make it my life's work uh, to show how they're wrong. I'd rather be for Jesus than just be against other churches or other denominations. I'd rather spend my energy building disciples than tearing down everybody I disagree with. And here's why it's so tempting to define yourself by what you're against. Because it attracts a lot of attention. And it's the easiest way to get a big crowd. It's the easiest way. Nothing brings two people together faster than the hatred of a third person. Collective hate draws a crowd. But the problem, it draws the wrong kind of crowd. It attracts those who are critical and condescending, not compassionate and caring. It tends to draw people who like to point their fingers, not those who are ready to roll up their sleeves. You can't make a positive difference in the world around you uh, by defining yourself by just all the things you're against. Uh, so the question is, what are you for? What do the people around you know that you're for? Who are you for? Surround yourself with those who are for the same things that you're for. Now here's the third thing that we can do to strengthen ourselves in unity. Let's focus more on the majors and less on the minors. And this is exactly what the church did. Listen to verse 33. It says, With great power... The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There are all kinds of churches out there. Our city's full of them. We've got over, I think, 600 churches. We have 160 in our denomination. And a lot of them don't like each other. 
And a lot of them grew out of each other because they split over something and started another church and another church. It, it just, and you know that, I know that. The overwhelming majority of differences usually just don't add up to that much. Not really. That's because the most important issues, here's what we're in complete agreement about. Jesus is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and through Him we have forgiveness of sins, and we're saved by His grace. The early Christians stuck to that message. That's called majoring on the majors. Now, it took the early Jewish believers a little longer. They're like, yeah, but we sure wish you would get more Jewish before you come to Christ, or once you do, you do some of the things we do, and wish you would look a little more like us, and act a little more like us, and dress a little more like us. And those early Greek Christians were like, no, we got Jesus. We're not going to act like you and start doing your stuff. And God began to teach them, that's okay. I may, you may, we may disagree with the church down the street. This, is Kings, this section of Kingston Pike is called Church Row. <laughs> because there are a lot of churches uh, in, this, in this part of town. And most of the churches in this area of town our older, we've been here for a while. We've been established for a while. And we have differences. And it may be on a few points of doctrine, but we both agree, and we all agree, on what is most important. Jesus is Lord. He's alive. And through Jesus, broken lives can be put back together. Guilt can be covered with forgiveness. And shame can be crucified on the cross. That's called majoring on the majors. Uh, in a marriage, in a family, in a friendship, in a workplace, it's real easy to lose sight of that sometimes. To shift our focus from what really matters to what doesn't matter so much. And you've all got somebody in your life like that, right? Probably more than one people. You've got, all got a neighbor who just kind of bugs you a little bit, or is different, or this, or that. You know, I mean, we've, we've, we've all kind of got that. I had a couple to come into my office once whose marriage was just unraveling very quickly, and they were on the brink of falling apart. And sometimes people will come to me early on, sometimes I'm like the last resort, and sometimes I'm even the guy they come to see so that they can say later, oh, we tried counseling and it didn't work, when they really pretty much already given up and checked out. Now, I'm not a marriage counselor, but in this situation, it was so obvious to anyone and everyone who could have, who could have identified the problem in a workable solution. During the meeting, and they, they came in, and they said, if you've ever been in my office, you know, I've got this, this very powerful throne-like chair. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. And I'm there, and they're across on the other side, and they're, I can't, turn and they're um, sitting on this little black sofa in my office she's sitting on one end he's on the other they were like three feet, ap feet apart and I said okay uh, and they wouldn't look at each other when they would answer the questions this isn't the only time it happened they would talk to me even though well he blah 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 well she blah 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 and I think you know she's right there too <laughs> but they wouldn't even wouldn't make eye contact so I just said okay let's just let's be transparent let's put all this out on the table I said, what is it about your husband that just really bothers you? She sat there and she goes, oh, like, oh, where do I start? There's so much. And this is what she came up with. She goes, I cannot stand to be in the same room with him. Of course, the smarty part of me thought, you're in the same room with him right now. You know, but I, I said, well, tell me about that. Why? She goes, well, for one thing, 
he clears his throat all the time. Every five seconds, he clears his throat. I just want to scream. And again, I was so tempted to go, but I didn't. She admitted later in the conversation, he's a good provider, he's a good father, he's an attentive husband, but there's some things that just drove him up the wall. And I thought, there are ten women in line ready to take your husband. (laughs) They will overlook the clearing of the throat. Those of you who are married, you understand this, don't you? There's probably some little habits (laughs) or quirks about your partner that you think, oh, Dan, we're going to come see you this week. I just, you know... That's nothing. You should hear him snore every... I mean, mean, you just got got this stuff. And sometimes all those little annoying things will blind you and you forget to notice the thousand good things that they do right and all the good qualities that they have. And all you hear is the sniffling and the throat clearing and the lip smacking and the snoring and and you you start focusing on the flaws about one another. Couples, don't throw away this precious gift of a relationship that God has given you because of some quirks. Children, don't discount and walk away from your parents because they're weird. (laughs) If all you see are the little things, you're just going to miss out on what really matters in the relationship. And that's called majoring on the minors. What happens when you major on the minors is you can't see what's important anymore. And a lot of people spend their entire lives focusing on things of secondary importance and not on the relationships in everything they do. What I mean was, you know, everybody makes different decisions and go forward. And we choose a job not because of what good we think we can do, but because we think, oh, this will pay more than, than this one. Or we choose a church because, oh, it's a little more entertaining and, than, than the, the other one down the street. And uh, we like this person based on their looks and not because of their character. I mean, we all make choices for superficial and shallow reasons sometimes. And it's tempting to go through life doing that, majoring on minors. But if you do, you're never going to make a lasting impact. You're never, you never will. You may accumulate some things, and you may win an argument or two here and there, but that's about it. You as an individual, and we as a church, need to focus our time and our energy on what matters most. Let's major on the majors. It was horrific. It was just awful. And it broke my heart what happened this week. Because one young man could not see past the differences that he had exaggerated and exploded in his own heart and mind to the point where he's so filled with hatred that he would take the lives of other people in a prayer meeting, in a church. That same thing happened just down the street from us. On a smaller scale, but you remember several years ago, a guy walked into the Unitarian Church and shot people. So this isn't something abstract in another city. It's here. It's not even just in our own town. It's down the street from us. I can walk there. Folks, we counter the evil 
that this monster brings into our world and our community by loving each other, loving past the differences and seeing the similarities. That's one of the things I've always loved about Calvary. I've loved this about you. We have folks from the north and the south, from the east and the west. We have people here today from Asia, from Haiti, from the U.S., from all kinds of places, even Mississippi. And our unity is not in how we talk or the foods that we prefer. It's Jesus. Now, I found this out. The more I've traveled, the more places I've been, I stay in a home a few you know, days in Latin America, and I realize this guy is just like me. We don't speak the same language, but he loves his wife, cares about his family, he's concerned about his community, and he has a passion to see Jesus be more famous where he lives. So you can go through life singing, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. Or we can begin to overlook those distinctions. And Before we separate ourselves or exclude anyone, I want you to ask this, and I want you to do it in very practical ways this week in all the different environments and places that you go. How are we the same? Is there common ground we share? Common beliefs, common goals. Can we use these as a starting point to start a spiritual conversation, to work through differences or even work around them? You may not, and you're probably not, going to agree point for point on every single subject with your spouse or your parents or your friends or your co-workers or even fellow church members. But we can all love alike. We can all be of one heart and one mind. Because being of one mind doesn't mean that we all have the same opinion, that we all have the same big picture. It means that we're unified in Jesus. There's power in unity. Let's use that common ground that we share to make a mark, to make a dent in Knoxville on the world around us. It's very, very powerful. Would you stand and let's just pray together and we worship and ask God.